Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hey there. I cannot help but uh, comment on, I know this is a podcast, it's an audio medium, but Haley has on a jersey and Alex has on a cap. Everybody's excited for baseball but me. Happy opening day to to the pod squad. Haley, uh, I know you live in L.A., uh, you have a Dodgers shirt on. I did want to, like, I mean, have you, are the Dodgers your team? Because you're still, like, kind of new into the pod. I feel like I want to tell the people about, like, where you're coming from on this auspicious yeah. sporting day. You, so I, Yeah, I grew up without an MLB team. My hometown of Omaha, Nebraska does not have one. <laughs> yeah. So when I moved to L.A., I was like, all right, jumping on the bandwagon, let's do it. You happened to move to the city when the Dodgers were in the middle of like being perennially competitive and uh, yeah, and amazing. Yeah, the day that I moved here, they were playing in the World Series. Oh wow! How exciting for you! Yeah, (laughs) yeah. What a what a fortuitous choice. Now, Amber, I know uh, you are not a baseball fan. Your but your is your husband? Does he does he adopt? Oh, the he's, Mets. He's okay, the Mets, well, for sure. I well then, like my sincerest condolences to you <laughs> uh, on this opening day when the Mets are zero and zero, and that'll probably be as good as it gets. Um, wow. But yeah, um, this is uh, this is an auspicious day for baseball fans. Also, an auspicious day for uh, Supreme Court watchers. Just minutes before we began recording, the Senate, in a somewhat of a formality, but they confirmed Katanji Brown-Jackson to serve on the Supreme Court. We have covered her nomination on this show. So has the term. Uh, and that is now sort of formally uh, cemented here. Yeah, it's an exciting day all around here on, on Pro Se. And also, I know um, we've got plenty of things to talk about in today's show. Alex, tell me about um, what we're having as our main segment today. Yeah, so Haley and I had a talk with Hannah Albarazi, who wrote about this law that got passed in Washington State that restricts the use of non-disclosure agreements by employers. Um, these NDAs have sort of historically been used to cover up um, illegal activity like you know sexual harassment, discrimination, all kinds of stuff. And there have been a variety of laws passed to curtail The use of NDAs and this Washington law goes even a little bit further than uh, some states have prior. So um, a very interesting piece and a very interesting discussion with Hannah. So stay tuned for that. But we do have some news to get to first. Haley, I think uh, you have our first story this week. I do. I want to kick things off um, with some more news of concerning ethical violations among judges, uh, this time on the New York bench. Um, according to some really excellent reporting from our own Frank Runyon, a whole lot of New York judges have not been disclosing outside compensation or gifts valued at over $150. And that's an issue because they are required to under an ethics rule that safeguards against financial conflicts of interest and corruption. I know we've talked about some ethical lapses and and issues around that before, but how do we learn about this specific lack of reporting? Some really good old fashioned badgering clerks for documents, which, you know, it's a (laughs) 
One of my favorite pastimes, really, up there with sure. with baseball. And Frank is an expert at that as well. If you've ever been cornered by him at a Christmas party, you know <laughs> he can be very persistent uh, uh, in this yes. regard. Yes. And so here he contacted 130 clerk's offices in all 62 New York counties. And that included um, county clerks as well as trials and appeals courts clerks. And he asked for those mandated annual public reports on what's called extrajudicial income. In half of the counties, court officials couldn't locate a single report related to this ethics rule, which is called Rule 100.4 of the Judicial Conduct Code um, since 2010, so over a decade. Yeah, well, let's talk exactly about, I mean, this is like the kind of thing where, you know, you're talking about sort of state-level judges. Like, there isn't always a very sort of bright light shown on these things, except when, you know, someone finally does it and there's all this, there are all these revelations. What exactly does this ethics rule require? Just so we can kind of situate ourselves to talking about what the judges were supposed to do and did not. Under the rule, um, all full-time judges are supposed to report the date, place, and nature of any activity for which they received compensation over $150. And judges also have to report who paid them that and the amount they received. And on top of that, um, like I said earlier, any gifts valued over $150 must also be reported in that manner. Um, And it is important to note that judges do report payments over $1,000 in a separate annual financial form. But Rule 100.4 is pretty vital because it's far more detailed and obviously catches a lot more in its net. The standard form, um, that annual over $1,000 one, it explicitly omits the names of any tenants, customers, or clients who pay judges, while Rule 100.4 requires that information. The standard form also allows for really vague income ranges, um, while the rule requires the exact amount received. You said that, you know, when Frank reached out to all these clerks, there was half of them just couldn't find a single form to share with him. Um, Is just everyone ignoring this rule? I mean, what's going on here? Not everyone. Some judges are complying, and um, some of those are even in counties that don't have many judges. Um, But overall, the compliance is really spotty. For example, out of 500 judges in New York City, just five have filed a total of nine reports over the last decade. And three of the state's four major appellate divisions, which encompass Manhattan, the Bronx, upstate and western New York, those divisions turned up just one report each in that time. The second department, which includes all of Long Island, Found 18 reports, though. So go Long Island. (laughs) And it it doesn't look like there are any public reports at all on New York's high court. In fact, Law 360 learned that three of the seven Supreme Court judges failed to file reports despite declaring outside income in their general annual disclosures. One of those judges, um, Judge Jenny Rivera, got between $30,000 and $80,000 for teaching at an outside institute that trains state judges. Judge Michael J. Garcia has a condo in Puerto Rico that brought in between twenty grand and sixty grand in rental income. 
And Judge Rowan D. Wilson also has a condo, this one at a ski resort in Vermont. <laughs> and that one raked in between 20000 and 80000 during four years while he sat on the high court. Look, judges, they are just like <laughs> us. I mean, very relatable yeah. stuff here. I got condos <laughs> that, I mean, I mean, I don't, am I required to report this uh, to anyone other than the IRS? I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. No, you can keep all your condos under wraps, Alex. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah. So, so what else? Uh, oh, yeah. So Judge Wilson also got between 250000 and 500000 every year in payments to retired partners from Cravath, Swain, and more LLP. And all of that should have been reported under the rule. I would definitely encourage everybody to go read Frank's piece. Uh, you know, it's it's somewhat in the weeds of judicial ethics, but it's like it's a pretty important thing. And I and he provided pretty good context as to like exactly what the impetus is for judges to report stuff like this. What was the what was the gist of that? Experts told Law 360 that the disclosure is vital to the public's trust in the judiciary. Ron Minkoff of Frankfurt, Kernet, Klein, and Sells put it this way. In some countries, the way it works is that whoever takes the judge out to the fanciest dinner wins. We don't want it to look like the courts are a bazaar or a judge is available to the highest bidder. And Richard Emery, an attorney who served on the Commission on Judicial Conduct for 13 years, Put it even more simply, obviously, judges should follow the rules if they expect the people they judge to follow the rules. I mean, that all seems very true to me. Um, but did the judges themselves that have failed to file these reports, do they have any reasoning behind not doing so? So they declined to answer direct questions about their compliance um, with that rule. However, lawyers for the Office of Court Administration argued that there was no reason for the judges to report investments um, and that investment income needn't be reported because it's passively earned. A unified court system spokesman said that rental income counts as an investment, so it doesn't have to be reported. But that's kind of a, a point of disagreement um, among various parties here. The Office of Court Administration also told Law 360 that there have been gaps in judicial education and training, um, as well as that disagreement. So that's why um, it kind of acknowledged it's a problem. And it said the judges will now, if they haven't already, retroactively disclose any compensation. Well, for our second story today, I want to take us to what I consider vitally important news. The trailer for the upcoming season of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills dropped today, and it looks like a wild ride. <laughs> All right, let's go. This is, I mean, this is your neck of the woods, Haley. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you <laughs> see these people out at the Americana or uh, uh, I've exhausted my LA communal uh, uh, re references now. I don't know, but <laughs> that was yeah. pretty specific. Well done. Okay, yeah, I don't know. So, Amber, do you do you just really want to talk housewives? Because I'm down. But um... I mean, I I do, I really do. But I will get to the point. <laughs> This Bev Hills trailer just really put me in mind of a legal story that we were already planning to cover this week on the show. Um, we need to touch base on the latest with disgraced attorney Tom Girardi, who's married to Real Housewives star Erica Jane. Just this <laughs> week, the firm Edelson proposed paying millions of dollars to widows and orphans of plane crash victims whose settlements were stolen 
by Girardi, who was a former co-counsel with that firm, Edelson. Edelson also wants to file a pretty explosive racketeering suit against members of what that firm is now calling the Girardi Family Enterprise. Oh, wow. The uh, Cosa Nostra of affluent Californian uh, legal service providers. This is really something. Like, Yeah, I mean, it really catches your ear. Straight up mafia stuff. It's like, oh, hey, yo, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, straight up mafia stuff. I love it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Let me back up, though, just a beat for anybody who hasn't been following the sort of unraveling of Tom Girardi and his firm, Girardi Keys. People might remember his name because he spent years and years as one of the most successful plaintiff attorneys in America, certainly in California. He took on the world's biggest companies, won billions of dollars in settlements and verdicts. Um, and a lot of people knew him because he was associated with the case at the heart of the movie Aaron Brockovich. I think that's one of his calling cards was being a part of that. But back in 2020, it all fell apart. So for years, many of the people he represented, and there were some pretty sad stories here. It was things like victims of plane crashes and pipeline explosions and other massive events. Those people never got paid the settlement money and verdict money that they were owed. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Girardi's firm shuttered. His wife, Erica, divorced him. And he finally had to admit to a federal judge that he was dead broke. Our own Brandon Lowry spent a year and a half tracking everything that went on with Girardi. It's a pretty sprawling tale. And we outlined just how he got away with it for so long in a two-part podcast series we put together called The Fall of Tom Girardi. If people haven't heard it yet, I'd really recommend it if you're at all intrigued by this because it's fascinating how this all happened and how it went on for so long. It is quite a saga. And not to, you know, overemphasize uh, our plug here, but truly, uh, Brandon's <laughs> reporting has been awesome and that two-parter absolutely needs to be checked out. Um, but let's get to the latest update. What exactly is going on here now? Yeah, so I want to talk for just a beat about Jay Edelson. So, he and his firm worked closely with Girardi Keys on a lawsuit on behalf of victims of a 2019 Lion Air plane crash. The firm secured a pretty big settlement with Boeing in that case. The courts have subsequently found that Girardi stole over $2 million in settlement funds that were meant to go to five Indonesian families who had relatives that died in that plane crash. And it was actually Edelson in that case that kind of cracked open the broader Girardi scandal Because in addition to the victims not getting paid, the Edelson firm never received their attorney's fees as co-counsel in the case. And so Mm -hmm. as they were digging through that and uncovering what went on, they brought it to the attention of the court in 2020, and it all unraveled from there. Since then, Girardi and his firm have been in bankruptcy proceedings, and there's potentially more than $500 million in liabilities at issue there. So we're talking big bucks. Yeah. Here's what Edelson's doing now, though, and why we're talking about it today. So he's proposing, um, and this would need to be signed off on by a judge, but he's proposing that the firm's insurer would pay more than $2 million to five of the firm's former clients. In exchange, the clients would assign to, to Edelson their rights to bring lawsuits against several people involved with Girardi Keys. Those people include a couple of the former lawyers at the firm, its former chief financial officer, um, a case runner, a litigation funder, and Erica Jane herself. Notably, the Girardi Keese lawyers and Erica Jane all say they didn't have control over the firm's finances and they shouldn't be held liable for that reason. So there are lots of dispute here, but this would 
really expand who could potentially be on the hook for all of these defrauded victims. So, I mean, we're looking at a pretty loaded season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I mean, we that's what sure it sounds are. like. I mean, I, I mean, if if Erica Jane is potentially on the hook for new legal action here, that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, so how would it work? I mean, like you say, it needs it needs to be signed off by a judge. Um, Edelson, if if that happens, Edelson could then go forward with lawsuits against these people. Yeah. What would be the shape of those legal challenges? I mean, what would that well, look like? Yeah. Edelson's ready to go. So if the court says yes on this, there is already a copy of the proposed complaint that was submitted to the court, and it's yeah. a doozy. So Edelson in that proposed complaint, calls Girardi Keese, quote, little more than a criminal enterprise disguised <laughs> as a law firm, and then goes wow. on to say, quote, indeed, the Girardi Keese firm operated what we now know was the largest criminal racketeering enterprise in the history of <laughs> plaintiff's law. Wow. My goodness. Tell us what so. you really think, Edelson. <laughs> I mean, the largest criminal enterprise in the history yeah. of plaintiff's law. It really, though, throws into stark relief how big, sprawling, and potentially important this actually is because it is a huge scandal. Yeah. And we learned some other interesting things from this proposed complaint. It contained details about exactly how the firm siphoned off money from the Boeing settlements in particular because those are the ones Edelson is focusing on. And it basically was pulling money to pay bills of the firm. The proposed complaint outlines a bunch of allegations of criminal activity, including stuff like wire fraud, money laundering, mail fraud, outlines all the scams. It really fits into the rubric they're trying to present of it being racketeering. I would also like to point out that while this proposal would pay some of Girardi's victims, you know, it would be lucrative for Edelson for this to work out for him too. I don't want to, you know, hide that fact in this story. Here's how it would work. So money recovered from the RICO lawsuit would be used to pay Edelson's insurer. That's the one that's fronting the money potentially, to the victims up uh, at the beginning. And then it would go to pay the victims new counsel and also Edelson for their legal fees. Any money left over, though, would get evenly split between Edelson and the client families. So, you know, we could see how the racketeering charges go and it could be some big dollar values there. But maybe more importantly and why I wanted to bring this up on Pro Se is that the details here are revealing about the broader scheme that was potentially going on at Jordy Keese. And this opens up a new avenue to go after them as a criminal enterprise. It would mark a big shift in tactics here and trying to recover money for victims. And it's another twist to what's been a super complicated story so far. Uh, no signs of slowing down at this point. So I know we'll be following what Brandon Lowry continues to cover. The push to outlaw non-disclosure agreements in the workplace is spreading, with a new law in Washington state set to bar employers from silencing their workers over harassment, discrimination, sexual assault, and other illegal activity on the job. Here to discuss the new law and its implications for workplace secrecy is Law 360's Hannah Albarazzi. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thanks. Great to be here. 
I was so interested in this piece you wrote that focuses a lot on this Washington law and a little bit on the broader landscape here. But I wanted to first talk about the sort of the issue of workplace NDAs and the type of conduct that they are meant to sort of cover up and that these laws are trying to address. Why are state houses kind of cracking down on the use of non-disclosure agreements in the employment context? Sure. Yeah. I mean, employers often ask workers to sign non-disclosure agreements or other confidentiality clauses as they onboard for a new job uh, or as part of a settlement after a workplace dispute. But the problem is that employers have used these NDAs to cover up various types of illegal workplace conduct. And how it usually works is an employer will provide money to a worker as part of a settlement on the condition that the worker not discuss their experience. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, not discuss that they even signed an NDA. So we all saw this with Harvey Weinstein and the Weinstein Company and their attorneys. They covered up sexual abuse and harassment for decades. Uh, And Weinstein was only held accountable after women broke those NDAs and spoke openly about their experiences, which helped protect other potential victims. Um, And so these types of legal arrangements often do nothing to correct the underlying systemic workplace problems that are happening. Um, They can actually shield abusers, leading more people to become victimized, which is why they're so problematic. So in the wake of the Me Too movement, some states have passed laws restricting the use of NDAs in settlements involving sexual harassment and sexual abuse. But more and more states started to realize that NDAs are being used in settlements involving many types of employment-related claims, such as wage theft and race discrimination. So states like California and New York have enacted laws to limit the use of NDAs in settlements involving any type of illegal conduct in the workplace. So you uh, specifically wrote about a Washington state law that goes even further than New York and California. Could you um, let us know what that's all about? That's right. So California and New York have laws that narrowed the use of NDAs in workplace settlements, but they still allow NDAs in settlements if a worker asks for it. Mm-hmm. But employers aren't likely to provide a monetary settlement to a worker unless they get silence in return. And so there's a concern that the laws could go further to protect workers and that employers may still pressure workers to opt for an NDA, thus preventing workers from talking openly about the workplace harm that they've experienced. And that runs contrary to the aim of these laws. So Washington state has a new law that goes a step further to pierce this veil of secrecy. And it does that by barring NDAs in workplace settlements related to illegal acts, even if requested by a worker. So it also avoids all blanket NDAs and non-disparagement clauses entered as a condition of employment, no matter what year they were signed in. Um, So under this new law, employers will no longer be able to require or even request that workers sign a blanket agreement. Uh, employers will also no longer be permitted to ask whistleblowers to sign confidentiality agreements as part of any settlements. Uh, But one thing to note is that the Washington law is not retroactive. So if a worker signed an NDA and was paid a settlement, they are still bound by that agreement. Going forward, however, employers that enter into settlements with workers 
cannot stop them from openly discussing any aspect of the dispute or the settlement other than the settlement's monetary amount, if there is one. So employers who nonetheless try to enter into or enforce secrecy contracts in Washington state will face a $10,000 fine for actual damages, plus the worker's attorney's fees. Confidentiality agreements concerning trade secrets, proprietary information, or confidential information not involving illegal acts are, however, still enforceable in Washington state. So this is obviously a hugely important issue. I I mean, I know that, you know, the use of NDAs is like very vast and some would even say abused um, to cover up unscrupulous conduct here in the workplace. And you can see the way you've described here, like Washington is sort of pushing the envelope in terms of like, you know, how it bars employers from using them. Washington also happens to be the... Um, home to a lot of very prominent businesses, including you know, Starbucks, Amazon, Costco, Microsoft. And you wrote about this in your story. Um, I can't imagine that they're too happy with this kind of restriction. What, what, what has the industry reaction looked like there in Washington? Yeah, there certainly has been industry groups that have pushed back on the Washington legislation. Um, two trade groups, the Association of Washington Business and the Washington Retail Association, with members such as Boeing, Microsoft, and as well as Walmart, Walgreens, and Target, they wanted the legislature to adopt an alternative bill that would have continued to allow the use of confidentiality agreements in settlements involving sexual assault and sexual harassment. They argued as well that the legislation was problematic because it permits a worker to openly discuss workplace conduct that they may reasonably believe to be illegal, even when it's not. They said this law was unnecessary because Washington's Department of Labor and Industries already handles employment issues like wage and hour disputes. So overall, they were not a fan of this legislation and they pushed pretty hard to get it stopped, but it didn't work. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and speaking of employers who would absolutely hate this, um, the Bachelor producers sure use NDAs in a lot of wild ways, um, which sadly, that's where my brain immediately went to when I was reading your story. <laughs> yes. But back to Washington, more importantly. Um, so you wrote that the law has an effective date of June 9th. What can you tell us about the the mad dash to to settle a lot of these disputes ahead of time? Yeah, because the law is not going to be retroactive, uh, lawyers told me that we could see an uptick in the settlement of claims before June 9th. Um, but after June 9th, it's likely that the number of new settlements will drop, given that companies tend to settle these disputes in order to preserve their reputations. So without NDAs, employers will likely see less of an upside to settling. So after the law goes into effect, when a workplace issue does come up, if someone claims, say, age discrimination, they can make that claim public from the get-go. They can take that claim to open court and hold companies accountable. So this should motivate companies to get to the root of the problems and put in measures to stop it from happening again. It could also discourage would-be predators because they will no longer be protected by legal mechanisms that silence their coworkers. 
Uh, the other thing that's really interesting here is that you wrote a little bit about how uh, the, this Washington law could become a template for like broader action. You said already that like California and New York have taken have taken sort of preliminary steps in this direction. Washington now builds on that. What is kind of the next phase of this? I know there are a lot of advocates that are kind of pushing for this on a broader level. What um what does that look like? What are they doing to kind of further this cause? Yeah, so workers advocates are pushing hard to bring this type of protection to workers in all 50 states. Um, and they're pushing at the same time for a federal prohibition against NDAs and other confidentiality clauses in the workplace. And the climate could be right for Congress to green light such a bill, given that just last month, President Biden signed into law another bill a bipartisan bill that blocked employers from making workers arbitrate sexual harassment and assault claims. Um, I think that the Washington law shows that the public and legislators realize that the laws restricting NDAs are really only going to be a problem for employers who are in the habit of sweeping workplace harms under the rug. All right. Um, this is a tremendously fascinating uh, area of employment law. And Hannah, you wrote a great story for us on it. And thank you for joining Pro Se to break it down. Um, I uh, thought it was a really good talk. Thanks so much. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and this week, producer Stephen Trader wants to be on the mic to surprise us with an offbeat story. Stephen, this always amazes me whenever you guys <laughs> let me do this. Uh, basically, a peek behind the curtain here. I show up to the production meeting on Wednesday, and I'm like, hey, can I be on the show tomorrow? And, and the group <laughs> says, yes. And then you ask, what about? And I say, it's a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't I, make us regret it, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm frankly shaking in my boots. Steve said, Steve said something to the effect of that, like I specifically would really appreciate this, and that, well, like, I've been, I haven't, I haven't really slept since the production meeting. If I'm being <laughs> honest, I've had this one in my back pocket for a couple okay. of months now, so it's not exactly timely, but maybe it could be timeless by the end. Ooh. By the time I'm done <laughs> great, here, great, great. All right. Um, so I want to take you back to early February. Um, and if you'll recall, there was a big piece of news that the Justice Department had announced that it had seized more than $3.6 billion worth of Bitcoin that was stolen from it in a hack that uh, happened back in 2016. Do you guys remember this news at all? I do. Yeah, yeah. kind of. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it made big headlines. At the time, it was the largest financial seizure that the Justice Department had ever happened. There was two individuals that were arrested for money laundering related to this crime. Uh, their names are Ilya Lichtenstein and his wife, Heather Morgan. She kind of made news headlines too because she has like a, a semi-rap career on the side. So that might oh, jog your memory a little bit. Um, that's not what this story is about though. So after this, this generated headlines for about a week. And what I want to talk about today is a story that I read a couple of days later um, that was written by our friends over at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they had a nice feature story basically outlining how the government had caught up to this couple, right? So I'm just going to go through that right now. Okay. So 
this theft happened back in 2016 when when hackers broke into this uh, Bitcoin exchange called Bitfinex. They stole what was then worth about $71 million worth of Bitcoin. So things go quiet for a while, but it seemed like in about 2017, the government started to pick up on the fact that there was some stolen Bitcoin that was being tumbled through an online marketplaces on the dark web. So Lichtenstein and Morgan were kind of bouncing around during this time. They lived in California for a while. They moved to New York. Uh, they started a couple of online businesses. They traveled overseas. Well, sure, they're and, rolling in. They're rolling in uh, confiscated Bitcoin. They, they're living uh, yeah, the life but, of Riley here, uh, potentially. So the government, I think, was in, <laughs> was in uh, evidence gathering phase at okay. this point. And and this kind of ties back to something that we've talked about before, where you know the government is trying to essentially crack the cipher of like the Bitcoin ledger, right? Which is anonymous. Yeah. And so one of the ways that they do this is, you know, they started using this specialized software tools to sift through blockchain data and search patterns and connections. It's a process called cluster analysis. And so they started to implement this. And one thing that they did was they started to pick up on this cluster of Bitcoin addresses where these little fractions of tumbled Bitcoin were being used to buy prepaid gift cards, like $500 Walmart gift cards. And they were able to trace that back to an IP address related to Liechtenstein. And uh, um, Heather Morgan uh, ended up redeeming these cards. So the government definitely has their eye on this couple. Okay, so, wait. Is that basically the updated version of the plot of the movie Office Space? Yeah. We're just going to take a tiny little fraction. <laughs> it was also used in Superman fraction. 3. They also yeah, did it yeah. in Superman 3. Yeah. Right. So here we go. So, so this Wall Street Journal story goes on to explain that um, it, the government had gathered all this evidence. They basically... Once they had established that this couple was linked to, to this little cluster of, of Bitcoin addresses, they were able to basically go back and sift through the data and see that like $8 million worth of Bitcoin had moved through this cluster. So here's what I want to talk about today. In 2021, the feds have gathered all of this evidence. They go to U.S. Magistrate Judge Zia Faruqi, and they ask him to issue a search warrant for email accounts tied to the couple. In August 2021, the judge grants it and writes a little opinion. I'm just going to read from the story here. Judge Faruqi approved the warrant in August, noting the public nature of the blockchain ledger meant that those using it had no constitutional right to privacy. Relying on cluster analysis to guide searches, he wrote, was akin to relying on confidential source providing tips to investigators. The judge wrote that cryptocurrency and related software analytics tools are, quote, the wave of the future, dude, 100% electronic. And if you don't know what that's a quote from, here's a little refresher. Kelly, hit the clip. New technology permits us to do very exciting things in interactive erotic software. Wave of the future, dude, 100% electronic. Hmm. Well, I still jerk off manually. <laughs> Of you do. <laughs> okay. Steve. Anyways, I, I just want to say absolutely I, all of this, all of this was meant to say just a little welcome back to Pro Se officially, Alex, from me with a judge quoting one of our very favorite movies, The Big Lebowski. Yeah, I, I, I'll i be honest. I mean, I didn't, I mean, obviously it's like an interesting like law enforcement thing with the Bitcoin and all this. I was really Really curious as to where you were going with this, but 
the the idea of uh, a judge. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a sucker for any time a judge references like sort of any piece of pop culture, but specifically this. Uh, love the Big Lebowski. Love the idea of the judge like doing the doing the Jeff Lebowski like relaxing in the Jackie Treehorn uh, Malibu house, acting cool. Scribbling on the notepad with the guy with the huge boner. It's a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Amber, Haley, are you familiar with the Big Lebowski? Oh, oh yeah. So familiar. Yes. yes. Love it. Absolutely. I think one of the things that just I find so funny about this, just to put it into a little bit of context. I mean, as I said, this is the biggest financial seizure that ju- the Justice Department has ever had. They're using brand new tools to try and crack the, the cryptocurrency, you know, and basically prevent fraud. They go to the judge with a very (laughs) serious request of like, we have a very big case happening right now and we would like a warrant to be able to pursue this. And the judge decides at that time to hit them with a Jackie Treehorn quote from the Big Lebowski. Like, I just can't get over that. Incredible. Okay, do you think that the couple accused here used any of those gift cards to buy a rug? Because it would really tie the room together. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. uh, I mean, honestly, like, the Big Lebowski is, like, one of the, like, most, like, quoted movies in, like, conventional uh, contemporary discourse. But this is, like, a pretty deep cut from the judge. It is a deep cut. Gotta say, like, it wouldn't even scan to me, maybe, if I was just reading it on paper at first. I, I was just thinking about like other, I mean, it is, it is a very quotable movie. And I always think so in the context of legal stuff too. Like this judge could have been like, you want a warrant? I can get you a warrant, dude. No problem. <laughs> yeah, there are ways, dude. You don't even want to know. That would have been perfect for the context can, of this exact thing he was ruling on. Of so course. that's a missed I can, opportunity. I can get you a warrant by two o'clock. That's no problem. <laughs> I also, I also eagerly await, you know, um, Whenever the judge has to hand down his next sort of ruling in this case, whether it goes to trial or, or, or like or whatever is going on, <laughs> clearly the rebuttal just has to be, yeah, well, that's like uh, your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this, they have we, to keep it going. That's and all we, I ever want from my appellate lawyers, just to say, like, well, that's just your opinion. <laughs> I really want Chief Justice John Roberts one day uh, from the bench. Uh, excuse me, dear. The Supreme Court has <laughs> roundly rejected prior restraint. Prior restraint, yes. Um, <laughs> he is a Bob Dylan fan, as we know, um, and so, and of course, that sort of figures prominently into the uh, uh, Big Lebowski opening credits. I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's familiar yeah. with that. We'll add this uh, to the shared pro se bucket list uh, of yeah. wishes that we have. Um, but glad you brought that, Steve, because I do think that was a, a very hearty welcome back to Alex being back from his leave. I mean, we got there eventually. Long-witted story to get to a very small payoff, but I always appreciate you guys letting me come on and just totally wreck the offbeat segment. (laughs) No, it was fantastic. Thanks for being here, everybody. We also want to thank other people for today's show, including, uh, in addition to Steve Trader, our other producer, Kelly Marcano, our guest this week, Hannah Albarazzi, and our contributing reporters, Brandon Lowry and Frank Runyon. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really does help other people find our show. If you want to know more about anything we talked about today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week. <laughs>